I have clear memories as a boy of coming out in the morning and almost every morning seeing my mom there on the couch with her Bible and her prayer journal and her eyes closed in prayer. In fact, I can barely remember a morning growing up when my mom was not up before the rest of the house sitting on our couch in prayer. And as a child, I remember thinking, what are you doing, mom? Sitting there quietly with your eyes closed. Are you sleeping? No, she's not sleeping. She's in prayer. She's communicating with God. And as a child, I'm thinking there's clearly something going on here that is beyond me. She's experiencing something in her prayer life that I've never experienced. Devotion, joy, peace. I remember also as a little boy on Wednesday nights seeing older men in our church on their knees in prayer at our Wednesday night prayer meetings. After Wednesday night children's church, we would be dismissed to go find our parents, and often the adults would still be in their prayer circles in our main auditorium, on their knees, seeking the Lord in prayer. I remember at times my dad drawing me into a prayer circle to listen to those prayers, and as a child, I remember thinking, what's going on here, Dad? There's clearly something going on that is beyond me. These grown men are on their knees seeking their Heavenly Father in prayer. And that same thought, something is going on here that is beyond me. Their zeal, even sometimes their tears as they seek heaven in prayer. In our passage this morning, the disciples, it appears, have had a similar experience watching Jesus pray. There's something going on there. That is beyond them. These men were Jews. They were religiously devout. They had probably learned to pray from childhood. But the prayer life of Jesus was something very different. He didn't pray like they did. And he didn't pray like the religious leaders of the day. They liked to pray for all to hear, for all to see. It was, as Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, a show They weren't instructing others in how to pray. No, they were showing off. And in fact, they were fooling people. But in contrast to these religious leaders, Jesus prayed privately, alone. His prayers were not an act, but genuine, authentic communion with his heavenly Father. And not only were his prayers different in quality, his prayers were different in quantity as well. Jesus delighted to prayer, and he prayed often. The Gospels regularly remind us that Jesus was often slipping away, retreating away from the crowds, even retreating from his own disciples to engage in long hours of private prayer, sometimes long nights of personal prayer. In our passage this morning, Jesus' disciples are watching him pray. And as they observe Jesus, they realized what I realized as a child. There's something going on in Jesus' prayer life that is beyond them. And whatever Jesus had that led him to be such a man of prayer, the disciples wanted it too. They wanted in on this. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
The wonderful thing about this passage is that the Lord answers their prayer, and we can get in on this too. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, and verses 1 to 4. Luke 11, verses 1 to 4. We'll be looking at Luke's recording of the Lord's Prayer. And while the Lord's Prayer is short and easily memorized, it is also rich. It packs a punch. It's full of vitally important content. And I pray this morning that as we learn from Jesus how to relate to God our Father, I pray that like Jesus, we too would delight to pray even more. Let's begin by reading our passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke 11, 1 to 4. This is God's word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Luke begins this section by setting the context. The disciples, as we said, have been observing Jesus in prayer. And not interrupting him, but waiting for him to finish, one of the disciples asks, Lord, teach us to pray. It's a beautiful request. Lord, teach us to pray. It shows humility. It shows childlike openness to listen and to learn. God loves such open and humble requests. And Jesus proves this by answering with a resounding yes. Notice the disciple who asks this adds this line, as John taught his disciples. It's a reference to John the Baptist, the prophet who was the forerunner to Jesus. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, records that some of John the Baptist's disciples became Jesus' disciples, including Peter's brother Andrew. And so these former disciples of John the Baptist remember learning to pray from John the Baptist. And yet they clearly can see that they have more to learn from Jesus. Jesus begins his answer to the disciples' request with this phrase. And he said to them, when you pray, say. You see, there's an assumption there that we will pray. And then we see here that Jesus is saying that there is here in the Lord's Prayer a model to be followed. When you pray, say. I spent several years of my life as a paralegal working at a law firm. And when I worked at this law firm, we used templates in our work. Every legal brief has to follow a certain format and contain certain elements. There are things that always need to be there. A greeting at the beginning, a statement of the case, a description of the law, and a reference to relevant case law. And so, to be sure we were on the right track, to be sure we didn't leave anything out, we used templates. This is what Jesus has done for his disciples here in the Lord's Prayer. He's giving them a template for prayer. And in giving the disciples this template, Jesus is modeling for us how to pray. He's teaching us what our priorities should be in prayer. Even teaching us what to pray for. But even more than that, he is showing us the right way to approach God. The right way to relate to him. For that's what prayer is. 
It's relating to God. As the Lord's Prayer is a template for prayer, we can see that it does not contain everything we are to ever say in prayer, but it does contain the seeds of our every prayer. I've been mentioning previously that I'm a gardener now. I've become fascinated with seeds. In a tiny seed contains everything required for a plant to grow and to bear fruit. In a tiny seed contains so much. I harvested a large watermelon this week. It was huge. And this watermelon started as a tiny seed a few months ago, and then it became, over time, a sprawling vine, and then flowers, and then those flowers matured into fruit. Our family had the privilege of visiting the Sequoia National Forest last weekend, and we saw trees, some more than a thousand years old, towering over the landscape, each one grown from a tiny seed. That's how we should approach the Lord's Prayer. All of the elements of our prayers, of our relating to God, can be found here in their essence, in seed form. Our prayers should spread like vines. And while our prayers will stretch like sequoias through perhaps decades Prayer is to grow from the handful of seeds that is the Lord's Prayer. All of the pieces can be found here. Thomas Watson, the 17th century pastor, wrote, This short prayer is a system or body of divinity. He's saying there's a whole system of understanding of our relationship with God contained in this prayer. For its completeness, it contains the chief things that we have to ask. Or that God has to bestow or give to us. A couple more quick brief notes on the Lord's Prayer. The prayer has become known as the Lord's Prayer for it came from the Lord. But remember, it is the Christian's prayer too. He's teaching us how to pray. Jesus didn't need to confess his sins, but he's teaching us to do that. It is a prayer that Jesus taught Christians to pray. It's for us. It's our prayer as well. And one more quick note. Luke records that the, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer here in Luke 11, but Matthew records it too in slightly different language in Matthew 6. Matthew's version is better known, and as you may have noticed, he has a handful of additional phrases. That's not a problem, there's no contradiction, and as we'll see, Luke's version is simpler, but it includes all of the same parts. <clears throat> as we begin, a quick warning This prayer is not to be used, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 6, as a vain repetition, something we memorize and repeat over and over again, thinking that God will bless us if we simply say these words over and over again. Jesus says this, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This isn't to be a prayer simply repeated over and over again and not thought about, but a prayer that is to get into our minds and hearts and change us. Let's begin at the beginning and see how Jesus' prayer begins. And we'll notice he begins with this one word, Father. This one word, Father, shows us how it is that we are to approach God in prayer. Matthew 6 has our Father in heaven. But the most important thing to note about this introduction is that one word there in Luke 11, verse 2. Father. So much is packed into that one word that many sermons could be preached to draw out the significance of it. 
This word, Father, signifies several things. First, it's reminding us of the person that we approach. We approach God, the Father. This is an insight into the Trinity. Christians believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a Father-Son relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. There's a beloved Son of God and then a beloved Father. And this relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ is at the heart of the Trinity. And it is because of that relationship that we are able to enter into a relationship with God. You see, the fact that Jesus calls God Father should not surprise us. Jesus is God himself in human flesh, and God the Father is his Father. But do you notice that Jesus is telling us how to pray, and he tells us that we can approach God the Father and call him Father, which means that this word also gives us an insight into our relationship with God through Christ. Now, sometimes when we hear that word father, we think of our own fathers. We think of our own dads. And sometimes that word father or dad can have a difficult coloring for us. Often our earthly fathers color how we see God. When you hear the word father, that may not seem like a good thing. You may have negative associations there. Authorities can do that. Good authorities can help us to understand something of what God is like in a good way. Bad authorities can color how we see God. If people are misusing their God-given authority, they misrepresent what God is like to the detriment of those around them. So as you think about God being Father, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to go to God's Word to find out what God is like and what kind of Father that He is. Let God define Himself. And then evaluate other earthly authorities according to his standards. And while all earthly authorities will fail us, let's thank God for the good authorities we do see in this world. But God, the Father, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to approach God the Father as a father, as a beloved child. Now, how does this happen? Well, friends, this is the beauty of the gospel message. This is not what we deserve. We, all of us, have turned away from our loving Creator God. And instead of lovingly trusting Him and obeying Him as as we ought to have done, we have all, all of us, rebelled against God. We've sought to live our lives on our own, independent of Him. Though our every breath depends on His sustaining and loving care. We have treated God like He was our enemy. We have sought to be kings and queens of our lives. And this rebellion the Bible calls sin. And it is right for God to punish us for such high crimes against the creator of the universe. It would be right for him to reject us as rebels. And yet through Christ, God has made a way for criminals to be adopted into his family. God sent Christ to live the life that we have not lived perfectly, to die the death that we should have died as a sacrifice on the cross. And God raised him from the dead, showing his victory over sin and death. And why did he do this? So that sinners like you and me could be united with Christ. 
Christ's perfect righteousness, his sacrificial death applied to us. And then, so through Christ, we can become children of the Heavenly Father. You see, this is the Bible's doctrine of adoption. And our adoption, a relationship now with God where we can relate to him as children with a loving father, has been purchased by Christ's life and death and resurrection. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are through Christ. In being united with Christ, we are now able to relate to God the Father as a father, and he sees us as his child. And this is the way that we are to approach God in prayer. Now, some of us, at times, have different ways of approaching God. We may approach God with much fear and anxiety. We may approach Him as a, a debtor, coming to God fearful, ashamed, and knowing I don't deserve this and I have no idea how you're going to treat me, God. That is how we should relate to him in our sin, but not when we become his children. We can come to him boldly because of Christ. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, we are commanded to enter into God's presence boldly with confidence, knowing that because of what Christ has accomplished, we have a standing with God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Others of us, at times, may enter into God's presence with a different approach, that of a, of a, a demanding contractor. I have a contract with God. I have been faithful. I have done my good works. I deserve this, God. You owe me. I've held up my end of the bargain. Now you hold up yours. Give me the things that I want and need. You see, that is not to be our approach at all. Our approach is to be that of a child with a father, knowing that while we don't deserve this, through Christ, we have this. And this should lead us not to be fearful in our approach and not demanding in our approach and not prayerless in our approach, but bold and confident, knowing that he knows our needs before we enter his presence. That's our approach in prayer. Father, let's now look at all of the requests that Jesus lays out for us. Look again at how Jesus begins our prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. When we think of prayer, so often we think of request. We approach God like in our pastoral prayer just a few minutes ago, making our needs and requests known to him. But do you see that Jesus begins with requests, but these first two requests are not about us. These first two requests are requests about God, asking God to do God things. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You see that Jesus is reorienting us in this prayer away from ourselves and toward God. Jesus will get to our needs in the last three requests, but he begins here in the first two requests with a focus on God. Perhaps some of you in science class in high school learned about the Copernican Revolution. 
there was in the late 1400s, early 1500s, a complete shift in an understanding of the solar system. A mind shift that was extreme. People who thought about these things, if they did think about these things, thought that the earth was not only at the center of our solar system, but they believed that our earth was at the center of the universe. Copernicus perceived and demonstrated that this was not the case. In our solar system, it is the sun that is at the center. And the earth revolves around the sun. The prayer that Jesus teaches us is to be for us a Copernican revolution. It is a complete reorientation. We so often have created a universe for ourselves with ourselves at the center. And we think that others, we even think at times that God should revolve around us. That as we come to him in prayer, he should be like a waiter meeting our every needs orienting himself to us at the center. And ironically, that doesn't work. Brothers, friends, sisters, are you attempting to live a life with yourself at the center? It will only make you miserable. Quarantine has made many of us stir-crazy, cooped up in our homes feeling claustrophobic in small spaces. Friends, this is what our lives are like when we make life about ourselves and not about God. We are confining ourselves to small spaces, the small space of ourselves. It's suffocating. It's only when we get outside ourselves that we can breathe the free air of a life revolved around God. That's the only place true joy can be found. Let me encourage you, friends. To reorient your lives with God at the center. I hope this prayer will help us do that. Let's look quickly at each of these requests. First, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, Old English. It means, very simply, it's a verbal form of holy, but it means to make holy. Now, how can God's name be made holy? Well, we can't make God holy. We can't make his name holy. But we can make it be seen to be holy, be recognized to be holy. And it should be our desire for God's name to be famous and for God to be seen and recognized for the great and holy God that he is. When it says, hallowed be your name, God's name here means God. We want God to be known to be the great and holy and perfect and glorious and majestic God that he is, and for the world to recognize it. That should be our desire and our hope. My children were reading in their children's storybook Bible last night about the Tower of Babel. People there in Genesis 11 said, let us do something great. Let us build a tower together. Let us make a name for ourselves. We so often act in the same way. And yet Jesus says we are to seek first and foremost the fame of God's name in our prayers, in our words, and as we reorient ourselves in our lives as well. Look at the second request here. Also, a request about God. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We are often about building our own kingdoms. I am often about Jason's kingdom coming. Jason's kingdom being established. I want things 
I want my name to be great, and I want my stuff to take place. But you see that in this reorientation of these first two requests, our greatest concern should not be for our own kingdoms, but for God's kingdom. You see, Christ's kingdom has come as Christ has come. As heaven's messenger, God himself become man, Christ has entered into our world, making God known to us and bringing the kingdom of God to men. And one day Christ will return. And when he returns, he will bring this kingdom to its climax and its final consummation. But until then, we are to pray for and seek that Christ's kingdom would spread through the preaching of the gospel and through the work of local churches. I hope, brothers and sisters, that you can, with Jesus' prayer here, begin to reorient yourselves and even your prayer lives to begin with God. The fact that these two requests come at the beginning of the prayer is not by accident or coincidence. No, Jesus is teaching us what our priorities should be. And in praying for God's name to be hallowed, praying for God's kingdom to come, There is to be a shifting in our priorities where we prioritize God first and foremost. And the remarkable thing is once we reorient ourselves, we realize that even the things that he's going to tell us to ask for, these final three requests that concern us, at the end of the day, even they are not about us. They are about God. So those are the first two requests, requests regarding God. Let's look now at the final three requests. Requests regarding mankind, requests regarding us. Look at the first of these, starting in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. We are to pray and ask God for his provision for each day. This prayer, give us each day our daily bread, is a prayer for subsistence living living from day to day, trusting God from day to day, not worrying about tomorrow, but praying and asking God to provide what we need for today. And you see here, there's clearly a distinction between the things that we want and the things that we need between necessities and luxuries. Jesus isn't saying pray for luxuries. He isn't saying God owes you a Mercedes. He's saying pray each day for God to give you your daily bread, your daily provision, what you need for today. And God loves to answer those prayers for his people prayed in faith and in confidence that he will provide. But do you see, even in this prayer, for God to provide for our needs, God is glorified as the great provider. He is the one who provides all that his people needs. And so he brings glory to himself. Look at the second of these human requests. Verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We are to ask God for forgiveness. This tells us that our sins are not primarily sins against other people, but our sins are primarily sins against God. And what we need more than others to forgive us is for God to forgive us, because every sin that is committed is a sin against God. 
We have failed to give God glory as we ought. We have failed to live the lives that he's called us to. And he is offended. We are to pray this prayer at salvation. Lord, forgive us our sins. We are to repent and turn from our sins and to trust in Christ and Christ alone for his life and death and resurrection to to be what we need for salvation. But this is also to be the daily prayer of the Christian, as John previously prayed in our service, a prayer of confession. We are to be praying prayers of confession on a daily basis as we seek to continue to restore our relationship with God as we give in to sin from day to day. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are to be praying prayers of confession. Notice that it says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You see that Jesus is teaching us that we are not only to be receiving forgiveness from God, but demonstrating that we have understood forgiveness by also forgiving others that may be difficult that may be hard you may be wounded listen to what john stott says about this line once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against god the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offense of others, that is, the things others have done against us, it proves that we have minimized our own sin. Brothers and sisters, this prayer, forgive us, for we forgive everyone who has sinned against us, is a reminder that every sin we have committed against God is greater than the sins that others have committed against us. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, not only to be pursuing God for confession, but to also be pursuing others in reconciliation and offering something of the forgiveness you've received through Christ. Lastly, our last prayer, our last request, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Here's a prayer That God would help us to avoid temptation, to avoid giving in to temptation, to rely on God's protection and deliverance from sin and Satan. This is something we need on a daily basis. Do you see what this assumes? That all of us are sinners, that all of us have a proclivity, a, a, a pulling from our own hearts towards sin and rebellion against God. Sin is not beyond us. Temptation is close at the door. All of us are susceptible to sin. And all of us need regular daily reliance on God to protect us and to help us to follow after Christ's footsteps, to experience victory over sin, to experience the killing of sin. This prayer causes us at the end of the day, to look to Christ. For you see that it is only through Christ that God can be our Father. It is only through Christ that God is glorified. It is through Christ that God's kingdom comes to men. And it is through Christ that we receive provision, forgiveness, and protection. Brothers and sisters, I hope that all of us would have a a big view of God at the center of our lives and a sweet love for Christ that would draw all of us not only into a relationship with God through Christ, but then the kind of relationship 
in which we delight to approach God, in which we delight to relate to God, in which we delight to have daily prayer with God. As we conclude our time in God's Word, let us do what Christians have done for 2,000 years. Let us stand together and read the Lord's Prayer here in Luke 11, 2-4, together to remind ourselves of what it is that we do as we relate to God. Let's stand and read Luke 11, 2-4. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he has taught us how to pray, that he has taught us how to relate to you, but even more so that he has made a way for us to relate to you, no longer as sinners with a judge but now as children with a loving Heavenly Father. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you know our needs. And thank you that you delight to hear our prayers. We pray that we would follow in Christ's footsteps and imitate Him as being people of prayer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.